Thank you for tuning in to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. And then Jesus became real and the things of the Lord became very real and, and that's going to change our lives when we understand it. And as long as, as long as we're pretty good and as long as we've got the answer and as long as we can believe in ourselves, as long as we can do something, we will never truly appreciate or love the Lord Jesus Christ as we should. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. I want to particularly put this word in that... Spending time in the Old Testament is fantastic help to your Christian life. Again and again, the themes that will help you persevere. Now, we were making light of hupomeno man in a fun way. Hupomeno is the Greek word to persevere. But one of the sure ways to, to persevere in the faith is to have your mind and your, your heart engulfed in the Scriptures and to know the stories of the Old Testament. And I, In fact, you know what I think, everybody? I think when Paul pens a phrase out of Ephesians or Galatians or Corinthians or Philippians, that as he pens it, he's making a theological statement and we listen to it and we go, yes, such is true. But I think he may have an entire story or sections of story in the Bible that we know as a word picture which support that truth from the Old Testament. And it seems that often the Old Testament gets a bad rap these days, and I want to defend the Old Testament in that it is so important for our Christian living to think through it. Now, as we have thought through 1 Samuel, uh, and we've tried to apply 1 Samuel 15 particularly, and I hope that by now you know the story. If you don't know the story, you may feel a little lost tonight because we're not going to review it all. But something I want you to remember is that the God of the Bible is the God of wrath and vengeance. I'm not going to say any more. You have to remember that from a week ago Sunday. Um, from this morning, nothing can substitute for a disobedient life. In this passage, we get a look at God's perspective of sin. And remember that. Tied in with, warning, you can feel fine when in reality you're not. And we must be so careful that our conscience become captured to the Scriptures. Um, With this particular emphasis, you minimize sin and guilt. If you do that, biblical Christianity makes no sense. If we're not willing to face up to what we're doing, I think it's a good illustration of what Scott told us about Steve growing up. I was wrong, the Bible says I was, will you forgive me? And the regular facing up to who we are is something that is very important in understanding Christian living. And I want to just say this again. Christ came for sinners. The Christian life, all through the Bible, I was telling a friend of mine just about a week and a half ago, that the aroma of the Scriptures, what just comes from just page after page, is this. If man, given the opportunity, man will blow it. Given the opportunity, man will ruin everything. We'll ruin this world if we get a chance. We desperately need a Savior. And we need one who's mighty and strong and perfect as Jesus. And so we need to remember very much that if, if we minimize sin and guilt, biblical Christianity will make no sense. But if we make a big deal about it, and if we, not, I don't mean to overly do it, but if we make a, you can't really overly do it. As one of the songs in the, in the um, hymn book we sing is, Lord, we are sinners more than all the sands upon the shore. And amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us. This ought to be the song of the saints, to delight in the graciousness of God to forgive us as wretched, pathetic sinners. And I know that you have put up with me for ten and a half years talking like this, but i got to tell you that I was bored stiff with Christianity and would never have made it in the ministry until I started to understand what the Bible teaches about man's wicked heart. And when I did, it made me realize, that's me, that's me. 
And then Jesus became real and the things of the Lord became very real. And, and that's going to change our lives when we understand it. And as long as, as long as we're pretty good and as long as we've got the answer and as long as we can believe in ourselves, as long as we can do something, then, uh, we, we will never truly appreciate or love the Lord Jesus Christ as we should. But I also realize that in my Christian life, we are saved once and for all when you come to Christ. But I also know that we have to continually be saved from Christ. Uh, and, and we will go astray if he doesn't keep us and help us and strengthen us. And so we need to remember that uh, we've got to have the scriptures be the, 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 the standard by which we're going to live by. Now, what is the last point? Well, the last point comes from verses 11 and 12. And we've already talked about them some, but I want you to go back to verses 11 and 12. Now, here's the story quickly. Samuel had told Saul the word of the Lord. Saul disobeyed, and yet he thought he was all right. And the word came to Samuel in verse 10, and look what happens. Go to verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, the fourth point of application from this passage that we want to run through tonight and, 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 and squeeze truth from this and, and consider it is this. There is a hefty price tag on those who are sincere about thy will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that you just read that, look back again at verse 11, would you? Then the word, verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. Now notice the effect this had on Samuel, everyone. God's man. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all night. What a godly man Samuel must have been. He takes the news of Saul's disobedience, and he is he's crippled by it emotionally. It, what the NIV says, it troubled Samuel. The King James says it grieved Samuel. The lexicon definition is this. Samuel became hot. He became furious. He began to burn. He became angry. A fire was kindled in his heart, is what happened here. Samuel hears the news of Saul's disobedience and a fire starts to burn in his heart. Now listen, if you study this word, it's very interesting. This word for Samuel being troubled. It's not the same word found in verse 11 about the Lord being grieved. That's a word meaning repent. But this is the word, your heart becomes burned up with anger and, 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 and fury. Listen, the first time this word is used is concerning Cain and Abel in Genesis. When Cain saw that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and he, he, his wasn't, he was burning with anger, the kind of anger that led to murder. It's also referred to as Jacob when Rachel said, give me children lest I die. And, and Jacob became angry with Rachel. Or in Judges when it says the Lord's anger was against Israel. Or listen to this, if you really want to remember how this word is used, in 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 11, the first time the Holy Spirit falls upon Saul, do you remember? When did that happen? It fell upon him, the second time, excuse me, when he heard about Nahash, the eye-gouging king. Do you remember him? And when he heard about Nahash, the eye-gouging king, listen to what happened. The Spirit of God fell on him, and he burned with anger. They're not going to go to Jabesh Gilead, and they're not going to touch God's people, not as long as I'm king. That's what he thought after the Spirit of God came on him. The sense of a tremendous anger. And Saul goes out and leads the victory there in chapter 11. Think of this, everybody. Would you stop and think about this? If Samuel was living for his own glory, he could have said to himself, well, I guess they missed the old man. Remember, he had withdrawn his leadership from Israel because now they had a king. He could have said, 
I guess they'll be calling the old man back to lead the theocracy. I told them the monarch monarchy wasn't going to work. Hey, I guess they're going to be asking me back. I'm going to go back to my old glory days of leadership in Israel. But one thing is clear. If you read verse 11, Samuel takes no pleasure in Saul's failure, nor in the task that confronts him. Dale Ralph Davis makes this comment. His distress should not be surprising. Most people who pray, thy kingdom come, mean it, and get worked up when that kingdom is sabotaged. Think of it. Think about this, everybody. Samuel, the man of God, he was old and gray-haired. You could have easily said, he's retiring. Hey, man, kick back, take it easy. You've been a faithful prophet all your years. None of your words ever fell to the ground. He could have said, man, there was a day when I led you. You're not listening to me anymore. Don't worry about it. you got a king. You guys live with it. I'm taken care of. He probably had a good retirement plan. But look what the text says, everybody. Look at Let's take it one more look. Go down to verse 11. God says, I am grieved. Samuel was troubled. And look at the last part of verse 11. He cried out to the Lord all night. All night. He cries out to the Lord. I wonder if we even have an inkling of what it means to really pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder if we really have an inkling, when we, if we could say like Jesus did, Father, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. My friends, He cries out all night. He's up the entire night crying out to God. A cry of distress. His heart is angry and furious that the king of Israel would disobey the, the, the God of Israel. And he's up all night grieving and crying. Is this anything for us to learn? Is there any instruction here? Is there anything for us to take with us in our Christian life? Jesus Christ said, blessed are they that mourn. Jesus also wept over Jerusalem. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. The book of Lamentations are the lamentations of Jeremiah, the cries of Jeremiah. The psalmist often refers to tears being his food. He grieves and he cries, rivers of water run down my face because they keep not thy law. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, look, you, should, you think you're so tough, you think you're so good, you should be mourning over your sin. He also says in the 11th chapter, I am full of anxiety, all the whippings and the days and nights and the, sh- and the shipwrecks and all the trouble that I've had. On top of all of that is the daily concern, the anxiety is what it means, the very word for worry, the daily worry I have that the church would go on. Peter, after he considers his sin, weeps bitterly. And the scriptures say things like this, if you love the Lord, you should hate evil. The Bible says an elder should be a man who is a lover of the good. He is so in, in, in love with the good that, that, that he can't stand it when there's sin in the world. Not just his own sin, not just his own kingdom. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. If you can remember, I remember very clearly listening to the radio and WIBC in 1987 when the news came over of, um, I can't remember, who went first? Was it Swaggart or Baker fell first? I think it was Swaggart. I can't remember. It was Baker. That's okay. You're right. But I remember hearing the news. And both in 1987, you know, there was all the jokes, the, 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 the gate of the kingdom of heaven has been jimmied, and all the things that people said. You know, some ridiculed, they said, I told you so! And other people gave up. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. Others didn't care, it doesn't affect my group, hey! Some rejoiced. But I'm going to tell you, friends, I think the Christian response to hearing about somebody who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the public eye and to make a mockery because of an immoral life should have been grieving. 
It should have been grieving. Because of the terrible negative impact for Christ. When David fell, it is said, because of your sin, you've given cause for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme His name. Do you ever consider, friends, that what you talk about, what you pray about, what you worry about, and what you cry about reveals where your heart is? Samuel cried all night and grieved and was troubled. He was burned up with anger. Let me tell you something. This is no different than Christ going through the temple with a whip. That is to be so consumed with the will of God, to be so desirous for His kingdom, that when you see it going astray, when you see the nation Israel, God's chosen people going down, you, you can't stand it. You can't do anything else. You've got to cry out to the Lord all night. Moses does this. Paul does this. And certainly you know this. There's a time to laugh. I laughed hard with Hoopo Minnow Man. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. But if you had to come down on one side or the other, it would be better to weep and to mourn and to grieve over sin in your life and sin in this world. I'm again struck. I'm again struck in, 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 with the statement that was made this morning in the newcomers class. It said, Pastor Kaufman, what are your goals for this church? And because of this study and because of the study from Sunday morning and because of things I've been going through recently, I will tell you that I could easily say what the church needs, what our goals are, is that there would be a people that know how to pray, a people that know how to love, a people that, that, that know, that, that have faith that's strong. And how about this? A church that mourns. A church that mourns over sin. A church that grieves. What does the church need? I think the church needs more tears, real and sincere tears. The world says, don't worry, be happy. The world says, pack up your troubles in an old knit bag and smile, smile, smile. But Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. And Samuel's an example of this. He's up all night crying because of Saul's disobedience. You see, it's one thing. It's one thing to weep over our own trouble, isn't it? And you know, God is so merciful. And let me encourage you that when you're weeping over your own trouble that he hears And he listens even to our feeblest cry. It's one thing when I, all of a sudden, in days gone by, I've heard bad news about the ministry, and I thought, oh no, this ministry is going to be affected. And I said, oh Lord, please, come on, Lord, help us. Please don't let this happen. Come on. And that's one thing. But it's another thing when I hear about another church in town and they're having trouble. Do I still have that same burden? If not, is my heart really committed to the will of God? Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that grieve all night when you hear about sin. I sometimes think, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that the ultimate explanation of it all is something still deeper and more serious. I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. Coupled with that, of course, is a failure to understand the true nature of Christian joy. There is the double failure. There is not the real deep conviction of sin as it once was the case. And on the other hand, there is this superficial conception of joy and happiness, which is very different indeed from that which we find in the New Testament. Thus, the defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy working together of necessity produce a superficial kind of person and a very inadequate kind of Christian life. You see, there's natural mourning over death, for missing a loved one. You see Jesus doing this over Lazarus. You see people in the Scriptures doing it. It's, it's good to mourn. There's mourning tombs in Israel. 
But that's not what we're talking about when Samuel was up all night grieving. There's also illicit sorrow, and that is when you're grieving because and you've lost something that the Lord purposely wants to take away. You remember the song I think Andre Crouch wrote? One by one he took them from me, all the things I valued most, till at last I comprehended. How's it go? Every glittering toy was lost. You remember? You know what I sometimes feel like, friends? I sometimes feel like that I get so involved with Kim Kaufman and his ministry and, and Kim Kaufman and his ways and Kim Kaufman and his will that it, it, I, feel, I feel like sometimes that the Lord puts a, a saddle on my back and I'm a bronco. And he puts that saddle and that saddle would be a lot like what Alice was carrying up here tonight. And, and, and you got that, it's, it's troubles and trials and it's there. And you know what, I, you know my first response? To buck, to fight. And to kick. And because God is so loving, He keeps the pressure there. He keeps the irritation there. He keeps the trouble there. And do you know what it's there? It's there to drive us to become closer to God. And so it's one thing for us to, to fight and to kick and to worry and to, to fret over ourselves. But do you know what would be the sign of godliness? Do you know what would be the sign of people that truly are concerned about God's kingdom? It's when you grieve over sin in the church, when you grieve over sin in the world, when you grieve over sin in your own life. Jesus says, blessed or happy are those that sin. And, or excuse me, um, I don't think he said that. <laughs> Jesus said, blessed or happy are those that mourn. And you know what? There's nine different Greek words for mourn, and guess what? He uses the strongest one he could possibly use. Blessed are those that are grieving over their own sin. It doesn't mean you feel better after a good cry. It doesn't mean that it's a spiritual thing to be morose or weepy. It's not grief out of self-pity. It doesn't mean that you cry at the drop of a hat and that makes you spiritual. But what it does mean is this. Godly sorrow or grief over sin. Emotionally being concerned because you're so attached to the will of God that when you see the will of God being ignored or rejected in this world, it grieves your heart because you have such a longing that His kingdom would come, His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus is referring to sorrow over sin, and that's exactly what we see in Samuel's life. You know, you've heard me quote this a million times. Isaiah, woe is me. Paul, oh wretched man that I am. Peter, I'll go from away from me, Lord. I'm a wicked man. David, I'm troubled by my own sin. Usually you study the men and the women of the Bible. And they're grieving. Mordecai puts ashes on his head, goes to the gate, laments the sin problem in Israel. Nehemiah, he hears the news. How, how's it going in Jerusalem? The walls are broken down. The temple's gone. It's gone. He says he couldn't eat. He fasted. He couldn't eat. He was so troubled over the people's sins. Let me, if, if I could say this to you, it's a rebuke, but can I say it to you? Because I need it too. You need it. Do you know we have so individualized our Christian walk? We have so gotten it that it's me and Jesus doing our thing. It's just so that, that as long as you and Jesus are all right and everybody else may be struggling, you don't really care. And can I tell you, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is you rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. You care about other people and you're interested in them. I'll tell you, it would be great if we could be people that could mourn, continually mourn, with sorrow over sin in our own lives and sin in this world. Watch this. This is all through the Bible. This is not just some isolated event. Look at this. Here's a passage you may not be real familiar with, but I want you to see it. 
This is Ezekiel 9, 3 through 6. And the passage reads, Now the glory of God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, now watch this, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament. The New American Standard says, Sigh and groan over all the detestable things that are done in it. Here's the angel, go through Jerusalem, put a mark on all those that are grieving and mourning because of sin. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Stop and think about it. There's a mark put on the people that grieve in the city of Jerusalem, and the rest are not spared. Boy. I'm going to, just to balance you out, I'm going to make two comments, both by D. Martin Lloyd Jones, and, and then we're going to have Q&A tonight. That's why I'm stopping early. But listen. Now I got one illustration to use at the end too, so hang on. He says so many people. He says so many people spend all of their lives in trying to find this Christian joy. They say they would give the whole world if they could only find it, and could be like some other person who has it. Well, I suggest that 99 cases out of 100, this is the explanation. They have failed to see that they must be convicted of sin before they can ever experience joy. They do not like the doctrine of sin. They dislike it intensely. And they object to it being preached. They want joy apart from the conviction of sin. That is impossible. It can never be obtained. Those who are going to be converted and those who wish to be truly happy and blessed are those who first of all mourn. Conviction is an essential preliminary to true conversion. One other writer says this, I can think of no greater message for the church today then it needs to start crying instead of laughing. It grieves my heart to see the frivolity and the foolishness that goes on in the name of Christianity. Nobody ever came into the kingdom of God who did not mourn over his own sinfulness. You cannot, verif- you cannot verify that you're a true Christian unless throughout your life there is the same sense of grief over sin in your life. Do we laugh when evil is portrayed on television? Do we laugh when we hear about someone doing evil? Do we laugh at jokes about ungodliness? Are those things laughable? Proverbs says that some delight in the perverseness of evil. And 2 Thessalonians 2.12 warns against rejoicing in iniquity. We must not do that. And then, let us try to define this man who mourns. What sort of man is he? He is sorrowful, but he's not morose. He is a sorrowful man, but he's not miserable. He is serious man, but he's not solemn. He is sober-minded man, but he is not sullen. He is a grave man, but he is never cold or prohibited. There is with his gravity a warmth and an attraction. This man, in other words, is always serious, but he does not have to, he does not have to affect the seriousness. The true Christian is never a man who has to put on an appearance of either sadness or joyfulness. No, no. He's the man who looks at life seriously. He contemplates it spiritually, and he sees it in its sin and its effects. 
He is serious, sober-minded man. His outlook was always serious, but because of those views which he has and his understanding of truth, he also has a joy unspeakable and full of glory. So he is like the Apostle Paul, groaning within himself and yet happy because of his experience of Christ and the glory that is yet to come. The Christian is not superficial in any sense, but is fundamentally serious and fundamentally happy. You see, the joy of the Christian is a holy joy, and the happiness of the Christian is a serious happiness. None of that superficial appearance of happiness and joy. No, no, it's a solemn joy. It's a holy joy. It's a serious happiness, so that though he is grave and sober-minded and serious, he's never cold. Indeed, he is like our Lord himself, groaning and weeping, and yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That is the man who mourns. That is the Christian. That is the type of Christian seen in the church in ages past when the doctrine of sin was preached and emphasized. And men not merely urged to take, make a sudden decision. A deep doctrine of sin, a high doctrine of joy. And the two together produce this blessed, happy man who mourns and at the same time is comforted by God. The way to experience that, obviously, is to read the Scriptures, to study and meditate upon them, and to pray to God for His Spirit to reveal sin in ourselves, and then to reveal us to us the Lord Jesus Christ in His fullness. Blessed are they who mourn, for they have been comforted. I'm going to close by telling you this. I mentioned in second service, I didn't mention it in first, that I heard about Campus Crusade having a meeting out in Colorado Springs here just recently. And guess what happens when revival starts to break out? When the Holy Spirit starts to deal with people? It's always been the same. Read about revival. There's a tremendous conviction of sin. There's people standing up, not talking about how good they are and what happened, but standing up and confessing sins. And here's the typical response of a Pharisee in the church, maybe even a Christian Pharisee. They go like this. You stood up and said, what? No, I would never. And I think there's a place for objectivity and carefulness in what you would explain publicly. I think that's surely the case. You could be out of line. But I want you to know, when you are a person that grieves over sin in your own life and sin in general, I'll tell you something else. There's a transparency that can come about in your life. You don't have to be secreted and hide it and can't get close to anybody and have to hold back because you've already gone before God with exactly who you are. And maybe your personality still may be different because not everyone's the same. I'm the kind that when you walk in the room, I flop my heart on the table and it just pounds in front of you. Okay, And not, not everybody's the same. But what I want you, so, so given the personality differences that, that would have nothing to do with this as being right or wrong, there's still the sense in which when we have come to grips with who we are before God and we've realized the depths, the total depths, and I, and I must tell you, just in line of what I said last Sunday, I must, I must tell you that the thing about God humbling you and revealing your own sinfulness is that it's real. It's very real. There is nothing that you hide. There, you, don't, you don't sit and go, you know, and, and you, you cling on to something. You just give up. And you go, this is the way I am. Thank you for your great mercy. And, and friends, I think of how revival would start in this church and that is going to be people going to be saying, you know what, I have not been authentic. You know what, I have not really known the Lord. You know what, I've been, I have been clinging to worthless idols, per se, in my life. But what's going to start is, is, is grieving. And you know what, I'll tell you what we're praying for here. We're praying, and I've been real, very much renewed in that. Some of you have asked what you could pray for me about. I'd like to, everything, everything rises or falls if I'm in prayer with the Lord. And you know some of the things we're praying for here? We're praying for righteousness to abound. We're praying for people to love one another more and more. We're praying for people's faith to 
to be strengthened and increase. We're praying that we may grow in our discernment of the knowledge of the will of God and that we would be more understanding. And I'll tell you, you know what? You know one of the greatest things I could tell you as your pastor is that you would one day grieve. You would grieve over your own sin. You would just be broken down. You would just come to the place and you would just realize how selfish and how wrong you've been. I don't ever say that and I would never want to work you into some kind of frenzy to get something superficial out of you. But you know something? There is, there is nothing more blessed than the refreshment of the Holy Spirit and the joy that fills your life when you face up truly to who you are. Even who you are when you're a Christian and you're in Christ Jesus and yet you haven't fellowshiped and been close to Him like you should. And so you know one of the things that would be great is we a church that would mourn. We'd be a church that would mourn. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your great kindness and your compassion to your people. Thank you, Father, that you are so quick to strengthen the hearts of your feeble people when we confess or repent of our sins. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you for your your dealings with us. And I pray that husbands and wives and relationships between people would be affected by because we would be a people that would so care about your will. We would be so interested in seeing your kingdom come. We would be so much living for not ourselves, but for for Christ. That his will would be so significant to us that we would grieve and we would we would really be moved to cry when we hear, Father, of your will being thwarted by people. I pray that you would work in this church. Thank you for those that will be praying through the night coming up this Saturday and Sunday. Lord, cause us to see. Sometimes we get so comfortable in our position, we don't, we're not sure what to pray for next. Cause us to see, Father, the great need we have of seeking you with all of our heart. Work in our midst. Put the saddle on us and break us, Father. I ask you to do that for this congregation and for myself. We would rather, Father, be broken by your loving hand to grieve over having to give up our own kingdom than we would, Father, to just live apathetically and cold and indifferent towards your cause. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Q&A. Questions, hopefully they'll be about today's sermons, either this morning or this evening. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.